0: Welcome to the MFP Live podcast. I'm producer Courtney Monk here. This episode of MFP Live, Donna Ladd and Kimberly Griffin's guest is comedian, musician, writer, and military veteran, Rita Brent. In this episode, the three discuss the way Brent's willingness to try different things led her into comedy, as well as opening doors to the many places that her career has taken her. They also discuss her desire to always stay connected to Mississippi, as well as her exciting new upcoming projects. The multi-hyphenate creative is a Jackson, Mississippi native and a graduate of Jackson State University, where she earned her bachelor's degree in mass and speech communication. She is a former radio host and producer for Mississippi Public Broadcasting and was a drummer in the 41st Army National Guard Band. Since embarking on her career in comedy, Brent has toured with comedians Ricky Smiley and Cedric the Entertainer and was featured in Kevin Hart's Comedy Central show, Heart of the City. Recently, she worked as a writer for the 73rd Primetime Emmy Award Awards, the 2022 Academy of Country Music Awards show and Stand Out, a LBGTQ Plus celebration, part of Netflix is a Joke, the festival. Here's Donna.
1: Welcome, Rita. Hello, Donna. Kimberly, thank you so much for having me.
2: Oh, we're, we, we couldn't be more thrilled. But the first thing I'm going to get you to do, just to set the table for folks, is talk some more about growing up in Jackson. I think you were born here, right? Is that right?
1: Yes, if I'm not mistaken, my mom is probably listening. I was (laughs) born in Baptist Hospital in Jackson, yes.
2: Close to here, I get it. Mm -hmm. So talk about growing up in Jackson a little bit and what it was about Jackson that kind of, and being a kid here maybe, or a teenager here that kind of put you on this path.
1: Yeah, as my mom describes my birth, it was very quick. I guess I was ready to get out and get started. Growing up in Jackson, to me, was great. I went to John Hopkins Elementary, then I went to Power Apex, then I went to Northwest Middle School, and then Murrah, and then Jackson State University. I went to Tougaloo for a brief time as well. But I enjoyed my time growing up in Jackson as a child. I went to church a lot because my mother, as a musician, and that's why I got my start in the entertainment business, basically I'm not saying church is a business. I guess it is. But she put me on the drum set at the age of eight. And so I began playing music with my mother and she was the one who put me in talent shows and she would accompany me on these talent shows. And she was slick. My manager when I was young <laughs> and I really we really didn't see it that way. It was just a mom and daughter duo. But she would coach me on Showmanship when I was at these talent shows, and she would pray with me before the shows. And here it is I'm 35 and I'm still performing in a different lane with comedy. But I owe it to my mother for helping me cultivate those talents from a very young age drumming, singing, allowing me to explore. I played basketball, soccer, and track at some point. So she was just very supportive and made a lot of sacrifices because she saw that I had an interest in the arts and performing arts at a very young age. But she must have saw something in me because you see what's happening now. So you just never know what you're going to end up doing.
3: So I actually know you first as a percussionist. And I remember walking by something and then walking back and your face was on the poster or something. And I was like, that's the drummer. She a comedian too. (laughs) (laughs) So talk to us about how you made that transition, how you knew that you had a gift and a talent for that.
1: I often brag on Mississippi as a place where you can cultivate, as a place where you can take chances and make mistakes. And the stakes are not as high as if if you're in New York or Los Angeles. You make a couple missteps and you might end up homeless and on the street. But in Mississippi, folks really do wrap their arms around you. And they're so supportive. If you want to switch lanes, I started out in music and had so much support there. Got the nickname Sheila E., and all that, and then I changed up and started doing radio, and then I changed up and started doing comedy, and I have to credit Mississippi as a place where you can just kind of move around and be fluid and figure out what it is you want to do, and folks are just going to ride with you, so around 2013, that's when I began doing stand-up comedy. The performance, that was always in me, even as a drummer, but I was excited as a drummer to be in the background. I didn't have to be on stage and in the front and making people laugh. That is a completely different type of pressure. But in 13, when I did comedy for the first time, I felt so empowered and I thought, oh, my words really do have power. And I think I got paid $25 that night for a five minute gig. And I thought, okay, this may help me pay off my student loans one day because I definitely wasn't making that much drumming. So I figured I could make a little more money being a comedian. And to date, that still is true.
3: (laughs) I think that's probably true because in Mississippi, because of Jackson State, USM, Delta State, there are a lot of really good musicians. (laughs) It's a few less comedians I can call for a gig.
1: (laughs) That's right. That's right. And I did all Um, of them, church gigs. It didn't matter to me. I didn't limit myself. It doesn't matter. Even now, it doesn't matter. If you call me, I'm going to figure out how to curate my set to fit the audience. And so I'm not afraid to take any kind of gig.
3: I remember I was riding down the street and they kept saying on the public radio station, Rita Brent. And I was like, what? I do remember I've had these moments with you where I went, she's on the radio now? So it's so interesting to watch the evolution because a lot of times people are pigeonholed based on the kind of music they do. That's the drummer. She's not supposed to also be... The radio personality on the very serious radio station. She's also not supposed to be the comedian I can bring to the church a convention. But in Mississippi, like you said, we'll let you would we'll let you shoot the shot. We're like, okay, if you say this is what you do. <laughs> It's what you do.
1: And a lot no, of musicians no. are in the club on Saturday night and they in the church on Sundays. Listen, a gift is a gift. I don't think you, you have to be limited to where you showcase your gift. If God gives it to you, you should be able to use it wherever you want. I've heard of some of my musician friends or the pastors that didn't feel comfortable. But you must say that the music in the church sounds really good. And some of it is because it is influenced by juke joint music. It's just music. It, it applies in different contexts and that's okay.
3: Yeah, I don't know of a church. A good church band where people (laughs) ain't playing in some other places. And singing in some other places. Yeah. You got to (laughs) make ends meet. Tell us about from that first gig, because the last thing I saw was you were writing with or for Dolly Parton. Tell us about how you got from A to, then you went to national. You were on national radio shows. Tell us what that evolution was like. Because one of the things I always say, Donna always says, she, she says she's tickled. I always say you can't believe what you can't see. And if you explain something to people, at least they have a path. Because when I grew up, everybody was a preacher, doctor, an engineer, nurse, social worker. That's what they knew. Somebody knew how to explain to them how to be those things.
1: That's interesting because I never predicted that I would end up in comedy writing when I first began during stand- doing stand-up, I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing is stand-up. I didn't even know about the behind the scenes stuff like writing for award shows. So the first big one I did was the Emmys. That was my second big writing gig. The first one was Charlemagne's God's Honest Truth on Comedy Central. That was the first time I was in a writer's room and I was anxious. I was apprehensive like, ooh, I don't really know the flow, how this is supposed to go. And once I got in there, I said, oh, okay, I'm still using the same skill set but just working with other people and writing in other people's voices. And then the next next gig was the primetime Emmys which is freaking huge and that was that was your
3: next gig you went from 1 to 27
1: yep and that was thanks to Cedric the Entertainer who I have been on tour with him for a few years and one night I was listening to his set and I did what we call punch-ups in the comedy world I heard some of his jokes and I said hey I think you can add this and add that and I think that gave him the idea that, oh, this girl can write. And so he was responsible for getting me on the Emmys. And then that has just been a domino effect. I met a man who's very well known named John Max. And he was on the writer's team as well for the Emmys. And so he helped me get on the ACMs, the Academy of Country Music Awards. And I wrote for that. Music Cares, where they honored Joni Mitchell as Person of the Year. And it just keeps coming. The writing geeks just keep coming. And so I think how I got those things is just not being afraid to take chances. If you put yourself in a box, you're going to remain in that box. But if you see an opportunity, I don't really know how I can do that, but I can prepare for it. That's the thing. You don't have to know how to do something when it's offered to you, as long as you are willing to prepare for it and then get in there and make a good impression. And once you do that, things will just continue
3: to keep happening for you.
2: I was thinking about this earlier. Kimberly and I, we run a nonprofit now. And as we've learned, it's all hustle. In some way or another, you got to meet people. You got to, you got to bring in revenue and the whole thing. I think for both of us running nonprofits, a whole new kind of hustle to get out there and find donors and all that. What I was wondering, listening to you talk just do you really have to hustle to meet certain people or, or do those things happen more organically for you?
1: Ooh, that is a really good question. For me, I think it's been more organic, just ending up in spaces And then doing the work, making a good impression, being professional, not causing a bunch of dust ups where people don't want to work with you because half of it is talent. I may even say 25% of it is talent. The other 75% is professionalism. Are you going to show up on time for the gig? Are you going to contribute? Are you a person that people can recommend to other people and not be embarrassed? So I think it's a combination of both. It has been meeting people organically because I'm not the one who's going to run up behind folks. I am an introvert, a full-blown 100% introvert. So in groups, I'm not the Shark Tank type person I'm not going to be doing all that so it has to happen organically for me and I'm just thankful that it has but there is a strong level of hustle because there are ups and downs at the beginning of this year I was really booked with award shows and now I'm doing a lot of stand-up stuff and as an entrepreneur as a creative you give up. Sometimes you give up financial stability, but you have freedom. When I had the nine to five, I had more financial stability, but I didn't have the freedom to create. So I appreciate where I am now. It's a mixture of building my financial stability, but also having the freedom to create and not having to answer to anyone. Because I used to be afraid when I was in the military. Or am I going to get in trouble if I post this on social media? Especially, I'm so glad I wasn't in the army during the Trump years because they would have kicked me out. <laughs> but There's a certain freedom that comes along with being your own boss.
2: Yeah, no doubt about that. Funny you say you're an introvert and not a small number of comics are actually introverts. Isn't that true? I assume it's a mix, but it It feels like there are a lot
3: of comedians that are introverts. It feels like there are a lot of comedians that are introverts. There's a a new term
1: called, Um, it's a term called ambivert. So you're, it's a mixture of both kind of ambiguously in between and I think I have probably have a little bit of that because when I'm on stage I have to be sociable and give a certain presence and confidence when I'm off stage I don't like to be the star in groups I like small groups I like one-on-one conversations actually being in big groups and getting a lot of attention when I'm not performing it gives me massive anxiety but when I'm off stage I just want to not work That's the thing. We're always working. And so people assume that we are always on. But when I'm on stage, I'm doing my thing. When I'm off stage, I just want to be a regular human, having regular conversations and not having to perform.
2: Yeah, I totally. I get that. Years ago, I was a club DJ, another life. But it was the same thing. You're so on. And then at least I was certainly this way. Then I just want to completely be off. It's just this on Mm -hmm. and off thing. So I know what you mean. And as I've gotten older, I'm definitely more of a mixture of introvert and extrovert too, where I just need to everybody go away. Now speaking, (laughs) I wanted to, before I hand it back to Kimberly, you mentioned your social media there. And I will say I spent a delightful morning the other morning catching up on your Instagram Oh and then I was just sitting in bed. I think it was Sunday morning reading and stuff. And I was just in tears. And I, I'm trying to think of the ones that, that I thought were the funniest. The little girl that looked like an old woman was hilarious. So I so as far as your wife, it's talk about that a little bit, how it is comedians pick on their spouses or the family members or whatever, but talk a little bit about that and what that's like for you and maybe what that's like for her as well
1: most times I get permission for what I'm gonna say I'm like I run the jokes by her because it'll be a real situation we're at the house and something happens and I'm like I need to take this to the stage And I'll ask her permission and she'll say, yes, you can do it. But just don't disrespect me. That's the biggest thing. Don't disrespect me in your comedy. Because I have heard some comedians talk about their spouses and I'm like, I don't know how they stay together after that. So that's my approach. Yes, I'm going to self-disclose a little bit and be transparent because I know the material is relatable, but I'm not going to disrespect her. For the most part, she's cool. I make her laugh a lot. And so I get away with a lot of stuff because of my sense of humor. So. If you want to keep your spouse or get somebody, I encourage you to find a sense of humor. That's how you keep folks.
3: <laughs> oh, I love that. that. That is one of my favorite sayings. That is not my ministry. When people ask me to do stuff, that is not even close to my <laughs> skill set. <laughs> it's not what I do. We talk a lot on here about brain drain in Mississippi. We talk a lot about challenges with staying and living in Mississippi, particularly for young folks, particularly for young people who want to start a family, recently married, all those things, worried about school systems, worried about what's, what's the next thing that's going, we're going to be at the bottom of what next list. I don't know where you live now, but I know you're here a lot and you're still part of our community. What has kept you here? I think you've talked about it a little bit. And what challenges you while you're here?
1: We live in Atlanta right now and New York was just not my vibe. And see, when you go other places, you really start to appreciate where you came from. So there's always a lot of hype about these bigger cities. But with bigger cities also come bigger responsibilities. And when we were in New York, it was challenging. We weren't used to the transit system, getting on trains and subways. We were spending like $600 a month on Uber to get around sometimes. It was a really fast paced place and hospitality wasn't there. And that's just not what we're used to. So what keeps me coming back to the South, it's, it's part of my identity, how I speak, how I treat people is all due to the South and how I was raised and the people that I was raised by. And you can be in a place and acknowledge that it has flaws, but not want to abandon it. So I will never abandon Mississippi because I I see the potential. I see the progression. I see the growth and I want to be a part of that. I don't want to leave Mississippi and come back and oh wow when did all this progress happen and I wasn't a part of that. I I never want to alienate where I came from because Mississippi made me who I am. Yeah that's it and I'll always come back home because the love is unmatched. It is unmatched. I have maximum support at home and I want to be a part of change, the change for the better. Like when the flag got taken down, I was so excited that I had spoken on this and I had stood on the Capitol and protested. So I want to be part of the change that I want to see.
3: What are some other things you'd like to see done differently in Mississippi or some other changes that you're maybe working on or sending good vibes about?
1: It's simple stuff like more pedestrian walkways (laughs) so people can walk. On the streets, that's one thing I did notice in New York. There are pedestrian walkways everywhere. There are all these different modes of transportation. One of the things that we struggle with in Mississippi is obesity and lack of exercise. If you had pedestrian walkways where people could walk and feel safe walking, maybe they would walk a little bit more. So simple things like that. I see that we're starting to inject more art into our communities and our neighborhoods, and that makes a difference. It makes a difference in the way that people feel when they're walking around to see a piece of art or to see greenery. I think the little things will make a big difference. And of course, the big changes that we've always wanted governmentally and legally with abortion rights and equal pay for women and LGBTQ rights and all those things will continue to be a fight. Maybe have some people in office who have the best interests of Mississippians at heart instead of believing that most Mississippians want to stick to the traditional ways that Mississippi is operated in. Uh, Having some younger folks, many people are like, Rita, you want to be the mayor? I'm like, no, I don't want to be the mayor. But I think having uh, somebody young like Mayor Lumumba who can relate to youth like myself and millennials. I don't know. Am I youth? I'm 35. Young folks so they can see themselves by the people who represent them so more more diversity in our leaders and just small changes like art and music and food we have vegan restaurants now things like that make a difference and we want people to stay here instead of just assuming that everybody likes pig feet and chickens <laughs> because I'm, I'm a flexitarian now. We right. don't eat a whole lot of meat anymore because I just can't take it. As a 30-year-old woman, my body is different. So just having options, just having options and expanding as a city and a state.
3: So one of the things you just talked about, Pride Month, we've seen a lot of missteps in corporate America. Maybe they probably giving you some material.
1: <laughs> yeah, especially Florida. Um,
3: right. Talk about what that I won't say journey because you're born who you are. I'm a Black woman. I know what those, I get to call before the call. Auntie, I'm about mm-hmm. to do this. I need you to be at dinner. <laughs> Talk about what that's uh, yeah. been like for you. I get to look. I'm about to make an announcement and I need, inter- <laughs> I need interference about whatever the announcement mm-hmm. is. It's been a lot of announcements. <laughs> Tell us what that journey's been like for you, telling your family, finding this beautiful woman who I believe makes candles. Did I make that up? I almost oh, she makes a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, She's I, have, a full, I have been out full into, blonde
1: um, ceramics.
3: I have I wasn't, but a friend of mine was like, "Oh, this woman is the best salesperson." I almost dropped. I don't know how much money sitting there talking to her. Just tell us what that's been like.
1: I think it's a journey. It has always been a journey, even from childhood when you first start feeling certain things and trying to reckon with them. Huh? How do I deal with these feelings when the world is telling me? that this is not how I should feel, but it feels natural to me. It doesn't feel sinful. It doesn't feel like an abomination. It feels natural. How do I find the confidence to be who I am uh, when the world is literally really hateful when it comes to things like that? So I am just blessed to have a supportive family, especially my mother who I've just been the closest to my entire life. Coming out to her was pretty much the, the biggest and the best thing I could have done because it made us even closer. But there are people out there who don't have supportive families. And when they come out, they are alienated or when they come out, they may even be physically abused, especially youth. Gay men in particular It is a huge struggle for them to come out because there are just so many difficult beliefs, typically rooted in religion, about how people should and should not live their lives. So when me and my artistry and Frida's artistry, we try our best to be who we are unapologetically and be there for people and let them know that they're not alone in terms of figuring out who you are and trying to be that person in a world where it could be dangerous. Now, she is extremely unapologetic. When I met Frida, I was in the closet and there something had happened with another creator and He was like giving me blackmail vibes. If you don't come out, I'm going to out you and all of that. And I thought, oh, he thinks he has power over me. And so I'm just going to come on out of the closet and control my narrative. And then I won't have to hide anymore. And I won't have to run around thinking somebody knows something that could jeopardize my career. So that's one of the reasons I came out, just to own who I am and control my narrative. And also Frida was like, just be who you are unapologetically. It's better that way. And it has been. I was afraid that it would ruined opportunities for me and it hasn't and that's a testament to some of the progress that's happening in the world and depending on where you are you can be more free admittedly when I'm in Mississippi I don't always feel 100% comfortable walking around with Frida even though I don't know why how somebody else lives their life even impacts you at all but for me it has just been a journey of ownership a journey of loving myself but also connecting with like-minded people so I don't have to be on the journey alone.
2: Rita, we've had people on here talking in various ways about some of the anti-LGBTQ attitudes and efforts and all of that within the state. And I know you saw the stories about the Ridgeland Library, the attempts to censor, or they said later, censor display, but I think it became that over time, that was celebrating pride. And one of the things that a lot of uh, people will tell us is that when they were younger, going to the library or accessing certain kinds of media or other materials we're not talking about pornographic stuff as the as these people like to try to say things are, but just to understand some of these feelings or and say that you're okay, that it's all of these things. But that people have said that those were very powerful things for them to be able to access. So I'm I'm curious whether that was that was something that you had done as you were growing up as far as seeking out seeking out materials or books or people to talk to or whatever to help you through the na- navigating this journey, as you called it, and or just what you think about these efforts to censor and perhaps whether you think it's getting worse rather than continuing to get better as it has over the years. So there's a lot of questions in that. But so whatever you'd say on that.
1: Yeah, I can't say that I sought material to figure out what it was I was dealing with. I sought unconditional love mm. then and now. That's all I wanted. Right. I couldn't get that from a book. I wanted my mother to love me regardless. I wanted my friends to love me regardless. And that's all I sought. Now, in terms of the censorship and stuff, that that is just really unfortunate. But I think it is great that we live in a world where you can access a lot of information. It's interesting censoring in the library. You would have to censor the internet, too. I don't even think a lot of children even know what a library is these days because they're always on social media. And there are a lot of resources on social media. So if the children don't learn it one way, they're going to learn it another. Uh, But I would think the best thing is to just have healthy conversations with them about stuff, children and youth, because they're going to experience it. But you would I would prefer them experience it in a positive way and not enter into something blindsided, something like getting surgery to change your body. Would you not want a child to have all the information possible before they try to make a decision and go sneak and do it or something like that? Taking education away is more harmful. So. Hopefully there are enough people in the community and enough resources where folks can find places in a safe way to learn about things. But censoring is definitely not going to help. They're just going to find the information another way, but hopefully in a healthy way.
2: And now there's so much open cruelty in our, among so many of our political politicians that that, that, it's just mentioned Florida, Texas and Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, that's rough. It does seem like that volume just keeps getting turned up more and more. And that's very disturbing, particularly with all the rhetoric about the trans community.
1: Yes, it is very disturbing. Sometimes I have to unplug because it is so infuriating. But what I try to do in my everyday interactions with folks is to just learn as much as I can. Whatever I've had experience with, I will share it with folks. Even after shows, after I get say material about my wife and things, folks will come to me. How did you come out? And how did you have the courage? And I don't take those one-on-one interactions for granted. So hopefully there are enough villages out there where people can go and find a place of refuge to where this rhetoric and stuff won't matter. So I would say even mute, mute some of the rhetoric as much as you can and grassroots to me still works as well you gotta sometimes it's a micro approach to a macro issue
2: yeah that makes a lot of sense so tangentially one of my questions when you were talking talking earlier about just your career and what you've what you've seen the trajectory of it so far what you've experienced we are seeing and you guys also referred to performative pride things and such as well. So it's both of those conversations going at once. But we're seeing in a lot of media and entertainment, at least surface efforts at, and I think it's probably a mix between surface and real, but at diversity and giving people opportunities, people within industries dealing with some of the kind of historic problems that have been there, sexism, racism, homophobia, whatever the case might be. So my question is, if you feel like in the world of comedy, that there, what is happening? It, is it getting easier for more people, for instance, to, to have a career like yours? Have you seen any changes at all?
1: I have seen a lot of inclusion, especially working in New York. I performed at a lot of LGBTQ shows. They're a trans comedian and they're able to have trans material and people receive it well because funny is funny. And I've seen inclusion. I've seen very focused attempts and passionate folks who are like, we are going to be seen no matter how much you try to hide us or diminish us. And that is just, that is extremely encouraging. Things will always be underlying. There will always be underlying attempts to silence. But as long as you have folks who are willing to fight, back against those things. I think that is very important. Even having conversations like this is important because sometimes things are happening and folks don't even know they're happening. They don't even know that their allyship is needed or their support is needed. So I'm not in the business of allowing people to silence me.
3: Chuck, we talked a little bit about folks growing up having access to people who had similar identities and that's across the board. That's black folks, white folks, somebody that's like you. You can see and you can dream when you see that person. What's something that someone could have done maybe in college or high school? What's something someone could have said or that would have made maybe made you feel comfortable coming out earlier? And I grew up in a church. So so there may not be an answer here.
1: (laughs) No, that's a good question. You know, what would have happened had I come out earlier? I don't regret coming out when I did and how I did it. It was pretty badass. I was on stage at the Alamo Theater in front of a crowd of 525. Okay, you got to go
3: with that story. Keep going. Start from the beginning and keep going. That's the yeah, story. Yeah, y'all haven't <laughs> heard
1: about this. I'm surprised no. the gossip didn't get to. you. <laughs> well,
3: well, in 2019.
1: Like that. Yeah, September 28, 2019 at the Alamo Theater. It was my going away show. This was right before I moved to New York. And both shows were sold out, 525 each show. And I just decided that I was going to come out of the closet on stage. Now, granted, many people might have already known, but many people didn't. I just gotten with Frida. I had been married to a man before, so it wasn't public knowledge. But I just thought, I'm going to do it here, and I'm going to immediately migrate north. Because I knew I was leaving a couple days out of that, after that, so I just, just just came out of the closet. But I think when I came out was the right way. I would like to think that things happen the way that they're supposed to. And my main quote that I live by is, what's divine can't be denied. So no matter what happens, I know that the destiny that has already been determined for me is going to happen. So I don't try to interfere or hinder anything that happens. But to answer your question, could anybody have said or done anything differently to make me come out earlier? Maybe just saying that you're not alone and that you're seen. Because there are a lot of people still in the closet in the South out of fear of how the church is going to react or out of fear of how the family is going to react. So just knowing that you are not alone in those feelings, I think that would have been helpful. Uh, And I didn't figure that out until much, much later. But I don't regret when it happened because even I am more mature and able to carry myself differently and move differently. I might not have needed that kind of pressure back then.
3: Yeah, it's so interesting because the church situation is really interesting. I'm United Methodist, and we are probably about to have a church split. On one hand, that's difficult. But I'm like, everybody needs to know where we stand right now. If you need to know what yeah. side of the aisle you're, what do you believe? Instead of this, don't ask, don't tell, babe, you need to know. Because I, I always think my mother and her, not as enlightened as she could be, but I knew what she was trying to say. <laughs> so I said to her, I said something about, gosh, I don't even understand why we're having this conversation. And she goes, if gay people leave the church, what's going to happen to the choir and the music? And I said, that's that's interesting. Mama. maybe you need to say that to the people. (laughs) I've
1: said that exact (laughs) thing in a joke. Like, LGBTQ are pillars and anchors in the Black church. Seriously. In terms of music. Choirs are dust. Toast. Even ministry. Yeah, the (laughs) choir director. Seriously. I told a joke about that. And If I am a person of LGBTQ plus identity in the church, you're not going to spew hateful sermons and call me an abomination and then get to use my talent. I'm quitting as a choir director. As soon as you start talking to the abomination stuff, I'm quitting. (laughs) So that is very hypocritical. That's hypocritical to condemn folks, but then try to use them for their talents. That's just not fair. But many churches, they are progressing. Come as you are and all are welcome, which is the way it should be. Which is the way it should be. God is love. My mom taught me that. And who you choose to love is your business. It is your business. And it is so interesting how certain preachers pick and choose what they're going to maximize in terms of pointing out the sins. And a lot of times they doing stuff they don't have, no business doing. And you have to wonder if you're focusing on this thing so much, or what are you dealing with on the inside? Are you trying to suppress something? So it gets layered and it gets really tricky. But I think the biggest thing is just to lead with love at all times as much as possible because all the division and all the different categories, that that stuff, it only divides us even more. So just lead with love and respect people. You don't even have to understand to not mistreat people. That's it. You don't have to understand, but just don't mistreat
3: people.
2: Listening to y'all talk about this and just thinking about just some things are coming back. And one of them was when we, when Todd Stoffer and I started the Jackson Free Press, which is 20 years ago this year. One of the things that we were very determined to do is, as you guys know, is distribute the newspaper in all of our zip codes, all of our, the whole city. (laughs) None of this, just put it where you're, you want the advertisers that, which was so popular (laughs) among a lot of newspapers that weren't historically black papers, right? The reason I'm saying this is early on, we had no money at all. (laughs) And so we were, we, he and I were driving this old Toyota Tercel around the city and setting up distribution spots ourselves. And so in a lot of parts of the city, that meant there, where there aren't as big as variety of businesses as, say, Northeast Jackson, that meant beauty shops and barbershops and barbecue places, etc. And people thought we were a little crazy when we first showed up and asked to put the newspaper there. A little distrustful, which I don't blame them. But the whole purpose of telling this story is to say that when we started the paper 20 years ago, it was there was a lot of fear just in... There was a lot of fear about talking about a lot of things. Of direct race issues, race history that had been hidden. But there was a lot of fear about talking about... <laughs> there's the whole cover. <laughs> That's hilarious. Or one like it. But there was a lot of fear it, talking about anything publicly and in our media right here in Jackson, anything to do with LGBTQ+, plus. not that we called it that then, but issues then. And so... When we were distributing the paper, and we were just we weren't making a big deal out of gay issues and homophobia in the beginning. we just included people with their husband. We had a man to love or whatever our power couple or something, and it was a gay couple. And we did run into some the reason I'm saying this is that we ran into some pushback early on in. Parts of this, like some barbershops and people would talk to us about that. But the truth is, nobody kicked the paper out. They just were like one, one guy, one barber said to me, we're not so sure about that gay stuff. But that was one of our best and most loyal distribution places for years. And the reason I just tell that story to say people, it was a certain amount of just needing the conversation to happen, I think. And not in this fraught kind of way, it was just normal. And just what, and so that was, I don't know, you guys just brought this memory back. So I'm just thinking about it. But it was just this normalization of the fact that we have a wide variety of people in our city, all over our city, and in our state. And I don't know. I don't know what the question is in that, but I just wanted to share that story because I feel like we have seen so much change on this over 20 years, which kind of culminated, I'll tell this one too, culminated for me when the legislature was passing HB 1523 and so many Black legislators stood up and just passionately fought against HB 1523, just as a discriminant nation the whole thing and i felt like i was i was very tearful because i was like this is it i wish all of us could be moving together like this but anyway i'm just wondering what if you have any comments about any of that but
1: you're right some people have beliefs for a lifetime just because that was what they were taught. And they've never been introduced to anything differently. That's often all it is. When you get to talking about Christianity and somebody brings up a Buddhist principle, you're like, oh, that's not devilish. (laughs) Oh, that's not bad. But we're taught Jesus only, just Jesus. There are songs out there that are crapping on other people's religions. And that's how they grew up. That's all they know. That's how you grew up. That's all with Christianity. But it's just a willingness to be open, to just hear folks before judging or before condemning. And so I'm so glad that Barbershop allows your publication to keep running because after you just let it pass, you realize, okay, this really isn't bad. I'm all worked up for nothing because of some kind of monotonous tradition. A lot of times people just have not even been introduced to things. They just believe because somebody told them to believe something. And then when you talk to folks and you realize, oh, Rita is not a label. Rita's not gay. Rita's not lesbian. Rita's just Rita. She's a human. Then that's how we're going to be able to move forward We're treating people like humans and not treating them like a Democrat, not treating them like a Republican or some label that really doesn't matter at the end of the day.
3: I may have said this before on the show, but I can't remember what House of, it may have been Al Gore who said this, I don't remember, or someone like that who was the child of a Senator or House Rep who grew up in DC, but his dad's Senate seat or Rep seat was in Tennessee, but they were, people were friends. And so what happens is I know Rita's having this terrible day And so the fact that she was screaming at me on the floor because her mom was sick, we're going to talk about this later on the house floor. Like there were more real relationships. But then constituents started demanding people come home, which you can get that, right? You understand why you want the person to live in your district all the time. It hurt the ability to see the other person as a human. And so you are having, it's easier to otherize the other party because you don't ever talk to them. You don't ever spend time with them. You don't ever have, hardly ever see them, except which is what they say, and you don't know what's going on. With so I think it's an opportunity. I think it's always good to participate in civil, because <laughs> sometimes they are, but civil opportunities to learn more about people that don't think like you, because it keeps and you on the even, right.
1: Yes, and if we are really honest. Some people are not interested in those conversations because they're more concerned with power. Mm -hmm. They're more concerned with power and marginalizing other people Mm -hmm. keeps you in power. So we can't save everybody. I realized that (laughs) on social media, I would be posting things and there are these people in the comments. They're just so hateful. And for a while, I would respond to them trying to change their mind. And then I realized... They don't want their mind to be changed. They are completely comfortable operating in this way. So sometimes you just have to let people go. You have to let them go. You cannot save everybody. You cannot change everybody. You can't change anybody, really. They have to want to be changed and they want to change themselves. So all I can do is be the best person I can. And maybe at some point it will influence them to seek some kind of
3: Actualization,
1: but we know that some folks are obsessed with power and marginalizing others gives them that. So they're they they do not want change.
3: And when you people aren't talking to each other, you keep them separated and they don't know what's going on. So that's always interesting. So tell us what's going on next. What's the next T? What's the development? What were we Because I was slick mad that I saw the Dolly Parton thing and I hadn't watched it live. I was like, what is I was slick the was ACM slick Awards? Mad. Yeah, I was I was slick. <laughs> I was like, she met Dolly Parton? What? Yeah, so it's fine. But what's next? Where can we see you for the rest of the year? Is there anything in development that you can't tell us everything, but maybe you can tell us something?
1: Yeah, sure. This special that I worked on, it's called Standout Celebration of LGBTQ+. All kinds of folks were on this show. Rosie O'Donnell, Gina Yashere, just a host of folks, Bob the Drag Queen, Trixie Mattel, they all came together this one night and I wrote for this show and it actually airs on Netflix. So that's a big, huge thing that I was a part of. Wanda Sykes and Paige, her business partner, they were the producers of this, the executive producers. I got to meet Wanda, which was amazing. And this particular show airs on Netflix. It's called Standout: A Celebration of LGBTQ+. And it was outstanding. So that's one big thing that I got to do this year. I'm really excited to see it. So take a look at that. It's a mixture of stand-up and some singing. I got to work with the gay male choir of LA for this particular thing. And I'm on the Born Funny tour right now. It's a tour that I started this year. I decided after the pandemic, it really jarred me. And I said that I'm just going to do everything that I want to do, whether somebody gives me permission or money or not. So I took some coins. I've actually used them all up, but I took some coins and began the Born Funny Tour in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I just recently had a show in Gulfport, Mississippi. And uh, if you want an exclusive announcement here, I'm going That's to what be I was running... angling for. Yes, the Born Funny Tour is coming to Jackson, Mississippi, Saturday, September 17th at Dueling Hall. Yes. So I will be making a formal announcement pretty soon where you can get tickets, where we're going to have two big shows. And it's going to be the return because I have not done a show in Jackson since September of 2019. So this is the three-year anniversary, third-year anniversary since I, and the last time I came out of the closet, so I got to find something else to do now. But that's Saturday, September 17th. <laughs> is going to be a Dueling Hall, and uh, it's a part of my Born Funny Tour. So comedian Nardo Blackman and Murphy Williams are on this tour with me. We hope to get to Dallas oh, yeah. and Houston and D.C. next. So if you go to RitaBrint.com, yeah, the big announcement is I'm bringing my Born Funny Tour to Jackson Saturday, September 17th. And I think that's the grambling game. JSU is playing grambling. So y'all go to the game and then come to the show.
3: (laughs) We're making a day of it. It's a whole, it's a whole. We start pregame all day. We do a brunch. Then we go into the game. Then we're not going inside. Then we're going, (laughs) we're going to be at the, you know, I meant to ask you this question earlier, but I think it's important as a creative during the pandemic, what did you do to keep your work product out there? Because for a while you didn't have any in-person shows like it just wasn't happening what was that like
1: scary as hell that's what it was it was scary because we depend on live performances that is the essence of being a comedian is performing live in front of an audience and I was like oh man what are we gonna do I was talking to Frida and we started our little show on Patreon the Rita and Frida show we're gonna get back to doing our podcast but I started getting request to perform virtually and at first I was like eh, I don't know about that That's gonna be kind of weird because zoom is weird people are weird on zoom they may mute they may not Jeffrey Tubin doing all kind of stuff on zoom mm. and so I ended up doing like a hundred and something virtual shows and that's literally how I stayed alive and people like the Mississippi Arts Commission were giving mini grants and sip talk I got a grant from them and higher purpose Co. I got a grant from them So I started using, and once again, support from Mississippi, started using those resources. And then I started performing virtually. I'm talking corporations, birthdays, anniversaries. I started the Rita Brent report as well, where I do the news, but I do it satirically. So it's informational, it's informative, but it's also funny. I need to bring the Rita Brent report back as well. It's just a lot of work. So yeah, during the pandemic- I was able to get some much-needed rest. You also get creative and find new ways to rejuvenate yourself, and so I did that with the virtual shows, and that was amazing. And I'm still doing virtual shows. If somebody is interested, if you don't want to do something in person and you want to make your company meeting or your company party funny, and uh, yeah, just holler at me. I'm doing in person and virtual now, and that's a skill I didn't even know I had.
3: How? What was? What is? How did you develop that? Where you were getting energy from the audience? How did that work? I'm, Well,
1: they do the comments. For one thing, I tell people get in the comments with your responses. So people would either be putting emojis or they would be talking to me about my jokes and then I would respond to them. So it was half improv, half prepared material. I would swipe through the the little squares and talk about people's homes (laughs) in a nice way. Maybe not so nice all the time, but it's a mixture. You have to improv because people can see what So if you see a cat over somebody's head in the background. You have to say that on the Zoom because it's funny. And if the crowds were small enough, I would have them unmute themselves. So like maybe 50, 60, 100 people can be unmuted. But if it's four or 500 people, I think the most I performed for was like 800 to 1,000 with Delta Sigma Theta, a gig I did. But if it's a small group, they can unmute and I can actually hear them laughing. So that was just amazing to, to have access to that during the pandemic. And I was still able to make songs. So I did the quarantine shuffle. I did Kamala. I don't know if Kamala was during the pandemic. I think she was before the pandemic. I can't even remember when I made that song. And then I made, I deserve to be alive, which is like my version of what's going on by Marvin Gaye. And that was around the time that there were a wave of police brutality situations happening. And I just, I said, I don't feel like being funny. I'm gonna use my voice musically this time. Yeah, during the pandemic, whatever I felt I just tried to release it through my artistry
3: yeah we didn't even get into comedy as protest that's for the next occasion and I am bookmarking that if there may be an MFP event where we may want you to come back after you know before or after or doing the your next time in Jackson because Sounds like this would be a great fit and a great opportunity. I'm gonna turn it over to Donna <laughs> right
2: now. It's like I was listening to you by the way, Rita, talk about the Zooms and man, mm-hmm. Zooms are exhausting. <laughs> Although I do man. being able to sit and interview someone like you with sweatpants on or whatever from the waist down. But but yes. I hear it, it's and I can imagine what you did on Zoom and having to have it, 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 it's hard enough to teach classes and such on zoom but this idea that you were doing comedy you were explaining that and i'm like oh my god i can't, that is so much hard work you talked about hard work and yeah. put in earlier in the show which i think you know what you do is hard work, and we we totally appreciate that because we all get to. I get to guffaw at you on Instagram, but I know there's a lot <laughs> of work goes into what you do, and I'm really telling people just go look at Instagram now because there's some great stuff. Thank you so much for doing this. This is amazing. Really do want to have you back. We are celebrating a Free Press 20th anniversary this year, so we might be get in touch with you about something related to that, which might be what Kimberly is alluding to. Okay.
1: Congratulations. That is no short amount of time to do something. We
2: took in the JFP now under the Mississippi Free Press. So it's been 20 years of this. It was really great to get it all back together. And so we're trying to figure out what's happening next. But thank you for keeping us laughing out there and for representing Mississippi so well. That's a big one right there. So thank you my for the here.
1: My pleasure. Mississippi is home and I love Mississippi. I love being from Mississippi. I love being a Mississippian that will never change. And nobody will ever make me feel different about my state. So I'm just going to keep being the change I want to see.
2: I hear you. I might get mad at it and tell it off every now and then, but I'm right there with you. That's I love,
1: love though. That's love. That's right. Yes. <laughs>
2: that's right and wanting it to be the best it can be or better than it's ever been is absolute love and i think we i know yes. all of us share this we've known each we've all known each other a long time thank you rita brett everybody go to netflix find this new program and, and i'm telling you go to instagram i'm telling you go to instagram we'll see you guys soon thank you so much Rita. Thank you.
0: mfp live is a production of the mississippi free press Reader Supported Solutions Journalism For the Magnolia State You'll find it at mfp.ms MFP live streams most Thursdays On the MFP's Facebook and YouTube pages Where you can listen live And participate in the show by commenting The MFP live podcast Is an edited version of the live show The hosts of MFP live Are MFP co-founders Donna Ladd and Kimberly Griffin This episode of MFP live Was produced by Todd Stauffer the podcast was produced by Courtney Mankin and is available on popular listening apps and platforms. Learn more at mfp.ms/live.